Welcome to Cancer Conference Update and Clinical Investigator Commentaries on Select Presentations from the June 2008 American Society of Clinical Oncology Meeting. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. To begin, Dr. Eric Weiner comments on breast cancer papers, beginning with perhaps the most discussed data set of the ASCO conference, the lead meeting plenary presentation of an Austrian study demonstrating a major impact on cancer recurrence with the use of the bisphosphonate zolindronic acid. The presentation from Nant and colleagues, which came from the Austrian Breast Cancer Study Group, was a randomized study in premenopausal women with ER-positive breast cancer. Importantly, these were not just women with very, very early-stage breast cancer, although about two-thirds of them had T1 tumors, and about two-thirds of them, roughly, had no negative cancers. Somewhere in the range of between 30 and 50% of these women had stage 2 breast cancer. They were randomized to receive ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen, which was considered the standard arm, or ovarian suppression plus anastrozole. And there was a second randomization to receive zolindronic acid every six months IV for three years or not. And importantly, the hormonal therapy was also given for three years. And I guess we've been following this study now since 2004 when they first reported a bone protective effect of zoledronic acid. But one of the controversial aspects or interesting aspects was these women, as you say, a fair number with stage two did not receive chemo. Right. So this is a really important point because, in fact, only a very, very small proportion of these women received chemotherapy. Adjuvant chemotherapy was not allowed. Preoperative chemotherapy was allowed. But of the entire study population, so this is 1,800 premenopausal women, ER-positive breast cancer, only 5% of them received chemotherapy. So these results were achieved without benefit of chemotherapy. And, you know, very impressively, the disease-free survival at five years was 94%. There was essentially no difference between the anastrozole arm and the tamoxifen arm. Both had virtually identical outcomes. The hazard ratio was 1.1 with a p-value that was about 0.6. So, you know, truly no difference. In fairness, perhaps somewhat underpowered, and it is possible that a small difference could have been missed, but clearly no major difference here. Of course, it didn't show that either arm was inferior So I think it's important for us to watch the results that will emerge from the TEX trial and from the SOFT trial. So let's talk about the key finding related to the zoledronic acid. So in terms of zoledronic acid, I think this finding was somewhat surprising, at least somewhat surprising to me, which is that among women who were randomized to zoledronic acid, the risk of recurrence was substantially reduced. The hazard ratio was under 0.7, was between 0.6 and 0.7, meaning that about a third of all of the recurrences were prevented, or a third of recurrences were prevented by the use of zolindronic acid. Interestingly, these were not just bone recurrences. In fact, they weren't just distant recurrences. They were a whole mix of recurrences. So it appeared that Local regional recurrences were prevented. Distant recurrences were prevented. They actually didn't give us the breakdown in terms of distant recurrences of bone versus non-bone. 
And the suggestion, if this study continues to show this difference and if other studies support this finding, the suggestion is that, in fact, the bisphosphonate is having more than a bone effect. It is having some systemic effect, possibly mediated through its impact on bone, perhaps making the bone and bone marrow a less friendly environment for tumor cells to take up residence and from which they can then disseminate. Although they also saw fewer second breast cancers. They did see fewer second breast cancers, and I have to confess, I find that a little hard to believe. Well, that's the seed part of the Martine Picard seed and soil concept. It is. I think that... It's actually killing tumor cells? Yeah. You know, the troubling part of that is that, you know, we do have a great deal of data with bisphosphonates in the setting of patients with advanced breast cancer, where there has been no suggestion of an impact on survival, where really the only benefits have been on bone. But we'll see. You know, anything is possible. And the good news here is that we will have other data available in really a fairly short period of time. There is a large trial from BIG, A-Z-U-R-E, Azure, I think is the way it's pronounced, which is randomizing patients to zolandronic acid or placebo in a somewhat different schedule and a much broader patient population. So bottom line, though, right now, today, right, when you go back to your clinic after this discussion, are you be offering zolandronic acid to your patients? We actually talked about this in our group last Friday, right after we got back from ASCO. So for a woman who is premenopausal and is going on ovarian suppression and tamoxifen, this is a treatment that I would offer her. And that is a treatment that we give women with some frequency. Outside of that setting, I wouldn't be in a rush to offer this treatment. I would not do it in the setting of ER-negative breast cancer. I would not do it at the moment in postmenopausal women. I think you can argue about whether or not this would also be something to offer today, tomorrow, next week to the woman who has an ER-positive cancer, gets chemotherapy and has chemotherapy-induced menopause, who in many ways might be similar to these patients. Obviously, these findings were very interesting, and zolandronic acid is a drug that we're used to giving in the clinic, and the toxicity, as seen in this study, was really quite modest. So the big question is, is this a finding that we apply to all women with breast cancer? Is it a finding that we apply to some subset of women with breast cancer? I think this is a question that many of us have thought about a fair amount over the past week, and our clinical group met last Friday to talk about it. At least at the moment, my inclination and our inclination as a group would be not to apply these findings to all women with breast cancer. The good news is that we will have other studies that will inform that decision. We'll have those data within the next year or so. For women who meet the relatively narrowly defined criteria for participation in the study, that is women who are premenopausal at diagnosis and who are receiving ovarian suppression and some additional endocrine therapy, tamoxifen in particular, since that's what one would tend to give off study, I would tend to use these results. What about the paper by Pam Goodwin looking at vitamin D? I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it's a study that's not ready for prime time, as Dr. Goodwin clearly indicated. But the study suggested that women who had low levels of vitamin D when they started adjuvant chemotherapy had a worse outcome than women who had adequate levels of vitamin D. And in fact, they 
were able to divide women into three groups based on essentially very low, low and adequate levels of vitamin D. And there was a stepwise improvement in both disease-free and overall survival for women who had adequate levels of vitamin D. You know, the real question is, is this something that would be amenable to supplementation? And beyond that, of course, it would be very helpful to confirm these findings, you know, in another study. It's still a relatively small patient population that participated in this study. I think it's important in that it suggests that vitamin D may be more important than we've thought in the past. There's been much discussion about vitamin D over the past few years related to bone health. And this is now yet another reason to think about checking vitamin D levels and perhaps, particularly in terms of bone health, to supplement. The challenge here, of course, is conducting the prospective trials to answer these questions. And, you know, unlike testing some new sexy drug, this is the kind of study that doesn't capture people's imagination in quite the same way. And probably the way to do this is to add this question on to a prospective trial. So as part of a trial that's asking another question, you're also asking and doing so very specifically in the objectives whether vitamin D levels matter in outcome. Speaking of drugs that supposedly aren't sexy anymore, we saw another interesting presentation on tamoxifen for more than five years at last San Antonio meeting. Richard Pito presented the International Atlas trial, and now at ASCO, Richard Gray presenting pretty much the same study, but the ATOM study. Yeah. Well, you know, tamoxifen hasn't been sexy since about 1990, but it still hasn't totally gone away yet, and particularly for premenopausal women. And perhaps for many postmenopausal women, it's going to be around for a little while to come. I always loved tamoxifen. To me, that started the whole biologic era of breast cancer. Now, I like tamoxifen too. I'm not sure that I like 10 years of tamoxifen, and we'll have to see how all this plays out. Right. So at San Antonio, we heard the presentation of Atlas, and at ASCO, we heard Adam. Now, Adam, like Atlas, was a randomized trial that was conducted in women who had been taking tamoxifen and were randomized to five more years of tamoxifen versus not. And Adam, unlike Atlas, failed to show any significant difference in outcome. There was a very, very small improvement in the hazard ratio for recurrence among women who continued on tamoxifen, but it was not statistically significant. When one combines those data with ATLAS, the suggestion is that statistical significance may be achieved. And there is concern that in both of these trials, they included a reasonable number of patients who had either ER negative or ER unknown disease, and that that may have minimized the potential effect of tamoxifen. I think the bottom line here is that there is a possibility that tamoxifen continued beyond five years will be beneficial in some patients. But at this point in time, I wouldn't be anxious to recommend more than five years of tamoxifen in anyone. I guess the strategy that obviously a lot of people look at is starting an AI after five years of tamoxifen. I guess a lot of premenopausal patients become postmenopausal, but some continue to be premenopausal. And I guess the issue is multiple nodes positive. Do you continue 
tamoxifen. I think in San Antonio, PETA was more positive that there was an actual, you know, he claimed 15% reduction in recurrence rate. But any situation, again, multiple node positive, still menstruating where you do it? Yeah, so I think this is really, this is a messy situation. And I think those patients who are premenopausal and have multiple positive lymph nodes, and five years later they're still doing well, and you know because they had multiple positive lymph nodes and they have ER ER-positive disease that they are still at substantial risk of recurrence. So, you know, in that subgroup of patients, and I don't know where to make the cut point in terms of how many positive nodes and how big the cancer is and what have you, I think there are patients in that subgroup where I would at least talk about continuing tamoxifen. Of course, the other question that comes up is, is there a role for some other endocrine treatment at that point in time? And there are doctors who have considered ovarian suppression or ovarian suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor. And, you know, albeit without a lot of direct evidence, in many ways, that kind of approach is much more appealing. We've been talking about running a feasibility study in women who remain premenopausal after five years, looking at ovarian suppression with or without an aromatase inhibitor, largely to see if women are able to easily tolerate that treatment at that point in time, five years out. But, you know, I personally think that for the high-risk woman with ER-positive disease who's still menstruating five years later, that some treatment that impacts on ovarian suppression is ultimately more likely to have an effect on her long-term outcome than continuing tamoxifen. Let's talk about this paper, a phase two randomized study looking at anastrozole alone versus anastrozole plus gefitinib. There's been a lot of interest in this issue of hormonal therapy plus biologic therapy. Ken Osborne's been talking a lot about this. This is one of the first papers I've seen that kind of looks sort of encouraging in that regard. So this really is, you know, this builds on a lot of preclinical work. And that preclinical work has looked at crosstalk communication between the ER pathway and the HER2 pathway. And simply put, and I'm not sure that I have a much finer understanding of it, so I have to keep it simple. Simply put, the suggestion is that signaling through HER1 and HER2 may in fact be involved in resistance to endocrine therapy. And in fact, there may be upregulation of both EGFR, HER1, and HER2 in the setting of endocrine resistance, which may potentially be abrogated by the use of a drug like gefitinib. So in this study, they randomized women to anastrozole alone or anastrozole plus gefitinib. As best I can tell, the study was slated to enroll about twice as many patients as ultimately were enrolled. But interestingly, in spite of that, what they demonstrated was an improvement in disease-free survival for those women who received anastrozole plus gefitinib versus anastrozole plus, importantly, placebo. And there was also a suggestion of an increase in the clinical benefit rates or the proportion of women who had either an objective response or stable disease for at least six months. There have been other studies that have been negative in this regard, both in the metastatic setting and in the preoperative setting. This is not something that I think is ready for prime time, but I think it is something that probably needs to be tested in a large randomized trial. And having said that, the CLGB has such a trial going on 
because Hal Burstein in the CLGB is running a trial in women who have metastatic breast cancer that has been resistant to endocrine therapy. In the study, women have to have had prior treatment with an aromatase inhibitor, and they are randomized to either fulvestrant plus a placebo or fulvestrant plus lapatinib, so in this case, inhibition of HER1 and HER2. And that study will answer this question. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. How about the presentation by David Miles on the so-called Avado study, another paper looking at bevacizumab? So Avado, in many ways, is very similar in terms of the design to the ECOG trial, ECOG 2100. Avado randomized women with metastatic breast cancer who were receiving their initial chemotherapy to docetaxel plus placebo or docetaxel plus bevacizumab. And the one major difference between this study and ECOG 2100 is the inclusion of a placebo. And of course, the FDA was somewhat critical of ECOG for not including a placebo. I think it's very, very hard always to have an intravenous placebo, but in Avado, they managed to do it. And the bottom line here is that Avado showed an improvement in progression-free survival. The hazard ratio in terms of progression-free survival was in the range of about 0.75. The median improvement in progression-free survival was far less impressive than was seen in the ECOG 2100, but as it turns out, the median in Avado was probably the place in the curve where there was the smallest difference seen. So I think we should pay less attention to the median difference than the hazard ratio, which in this case supported the data from the ECOG trial and suggested that the addition of bevacizumab to a taxane delayed disease progression. Now, the delay here was somewhat less than was seen in the ECOG trial, and I think that that concerned some people and made some people feel less enthusiastic about the role of bevacizumab. I guess my interpretation of it is that by including a placebo, they probably avoided any potential bias that may have been introduced into the ECOG trial. This, in the end, may be a truer estimate of the real advantage seen with bevacizumab. It may be a little bit more modest than was seen in the ECOG trial. Alternatively, docetaxel is a different drug. It was given every three weeks, and perhaps bevacizumab either works better with another taxane or it works better when given with a taxane that's administered on a weekly schedule. I don't think we really know. I mean, there has been, I guess, some data suggesting maybe the weekly schedule is more anti-angiogenic. Is that, do you buy into that? I don't know whether or not I buy into it, but I'm aware of those data. And that is part of the reason I suggested it. I think that there are a couple of other points from Avado that are worth mentioning. One is that in Avado, they actually looked at a lower versus higher dose of bevacizumab. Actually, the doses they looked at were the standard breast cancer dose, and they looked at the dose that's been used in colon cancer, which, of course, is 7.5 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks. And both doses appeared to be better from the standpoint of progression-free survival than docetaxel alone. The study was not powered to look at the difference between the two different doses. That said, if anything, there was a suggestion that the higher dose, the dose that's been approved in the U.S., was associated with a slightly better outcome. And 
Interestingly, there was no greater toxicity associated with the higher dose. So apart from the cost issue, the study doesn't give anyone any real reason to use a dose other than the dose that's already been FDA approved in the U.S., Let's talk about the last oral presentation by Joyce O'Shaughnessy, and actually you had told me about this before the meeting. I was really looking forward to seeing that paper, looking at lapatinib as monotherapy or combined with trastuzumab. Yeah, well, the paper from Joyce O'Shaughnessy and others that looked at lapatinib versus lapatinib plus trastuzumab is more of a paper that demonstrates a concept than anything else, you know, not necessarily a study that should be applied to clinical practice today, tomorrow, next month. The study looked at women who had received multiple lines of therapy for her two-positive breast cancer and had had previous progression on trastuzumab. They were quite a fairly heavily pre-treated. I think they like, were very. I mean, three trastuzumab regimens. I think previously. Yeah. And they had to document that they were progressing? Interesting. Yeah. We participated in this study. So, I mean, I had direct experience enrolling patients in this trial. And this was a group of very heavily pretreated patients. So patients were randomized to receive either lapatinib alone or lapatinib plus trastuzumab. What was again demonstrated was the real but low level of clinical activity of single-agent lapatinib in this setting. The response rate for single-agent lapatinib was approximately 6%. The combination therapy was slightly more effective from a response rate standpoint with a response rate of about 10%. But I think perhaps more importantly, since response is always a little hard to assess, and even though Many patients with HER2-positive disease have measurable disease when they're first diagnosed. After multiple lines of therapy, I think it's often much harder to assess measurable disease and to follow it. So time to progression tends to be an important endpoint or progression-free survival. And here in this trial, there was a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival with the combination versus single-agent lapatinib. And I think what this suggests is that, in fact, trastuzumab probably does have a role after disease progression on trastuzumab, and that combination therapy with two different anti-HER2 agents may turn out, in the end, to be a more effective approach than therapy with one of these agents. So it really lends credence to the design that is presently being looked at in the ALTO trial, in the adjuvant trial, and... I think should make everyone more comfortable with the combination arm on that study. Are there any clinical situations right now outside of a protocol setting with metastatic disease where you might employ this combination? Yeah, I could imagine considering it in the patient who had developed disease progression on one or two or three trastuzumab-based regimens where for whatever reasons I didn't want to use capecitabine, which is the approved regimen in the U.S. That is capecitabine plus lapatinib. And so, you know, there aren't too many cases where I would want to avoid capecitabine. Well, I mean, a lot of, if they had it previously. Well, so one is if they had had it previously, you know, a doctor had previously given them capecitabine plus trastuzumab. If someone had previously given a patient capecitabine plus lapatinib and they've also progressed on trastuzumab-containing regimens, I don't think I would be in a rush to use this regimen, but if for some reason 
they hadn't had lapatinib before, but they had had capecitabine before, I'd consider it. There are also occasional patients where you're just really worried about the potential problem from diarrhea that can result with capecitabine and lapatinib. Not a lot of patients, you know, where you'd be so concerned. But for example, I have a patient who I have followed for years who has had a colectomy for her ulcerative colitis and where bowel issues are a major concern and we have avoided capecitabine. So she has been on a number of trastuzumab-containing regimens. And I would think about, in her at some point, using lapatinib and trastuzumab, still being careful about diarrhea. And I guess we should point out that the dose of lapatinib when it was combined with the trastuzumab was decreased. It absolutely is decreased. And even with the decrease, you still have to be careful about diarrhea there. So they went down to a gram. Yep. Okay, let's just sort of rock through. Let's do some rapid poster quick takes, starting with Kathy Miller's ECOG paper, looking at a phase two feasibility trial of incorporating BEV into dose-dense ACT. Of course, we have the trial now ongoing. I guess these are the data that makes us comfortable to do this in the adjuvant setting. Yeah, I think these data make one quite comfortable about the ongoing ECOG trial. I had actually heard previously that there was a signal in terms of cardiac toxicity from this study, and I looked at this poster quite carefully last night, and I have to say I didn't see much of a signal. It looked pretty reasonable to me. Perhaps there were a few more patients who had declines in their ejection fraction or their ejection fractions, but the difference is very, very modest, if any. And I think as Kathy Miller concluded, the study certainly rules out a substantial increase in cardiotoxicity. It's going to be something that we monitored very closely in the randomized trial, and there are plans in the randomized trial to look at cardiotoxicity early on, and I think that's going to be important. Actually, this Friday night, we're doing an education symposium at the 50th anniversary NSABP meeting, and Kathy's going to be there to present these data, so we're going to we'll kind of grill her over a little bit and see what else we can find out, but our take's been the same as what you just said. Let's talk about the poster that was actually discussed looking at Cape Cytobine versus Cape Cytobine and Trastuzumab. I thought this was a really interesting study. Well, I think this is a really important study, and it's a study that, of course, we tried to do in the United States for many, many years. We didn't try it with capecitabine. We tried it with navalbine, and we could never get it done. So this is a study from Germany that randomized patients who had developed disease progression on a trastuzumab-containing regimen to either capecitabine alone or capecitabine plus trastuzumab. And what the study demonstrated, albeit a somewhat small and less than adequately powered study, but it demonstrated that there was an improvement in response and an improvement in time to progression using trastuzumab in combination with capecitabine. We can't compare this to lapatinib and capecitabine because comparing across these two experiences is simply not fair. But what it does suggest is that Ongoing HER2-directed therapy is important even after progression on a previous regimen. And in this case, it suggests that ongoing HER2-directed therapy with the same HER2 agent, that is trastuzumab, still is of benefit. And in a sense, it validates the practice pattern in the U.S. over the past decade, which has been not always, but largely to continue trastuzumab at least through a second or third regimen. 
And we haven't known for sure whether that, in the end, is a useful strategy, but it looks here like it really is. There were also a couple of posters discussed looking at new agents in terms of anti-HER2 therapy that were really interesting. One by Karen Gelman, looking at trastuzumab combined with pertuzumab. Yeah, well, we have an abundance of anti-HER2-directed therapy that is being investigated in phase one, phase two, and soon to start phase three trials. One of those drugs is pertuzumab. This study has been previously reported. It was largely done in Europe and was a phase two trial of trastuzumab plus pertuzumab in patients who had developed disease progression on a trastuzumab-containing regimen. Here in these updated data, the response rate was approximately 24%. And these data are felt to be promising enough that this is being looked at in a randomized trial that will be launched in the months ahead in Europe that will compare chemotherapy plus trastuzumab versus chemotherapy plus trastuzumab and pertuzumab in patients with HER2-positive breast cancer receiving their initial therapy. For those who don't know, pertuzumab is also a monoclonal antibody, and it inhibits the formation of heterodimers. So one of the ways in which it is thought that resistance may develop to trastuzumab is there may be preferential heterodimerization, that is HER2 pairing with either HER1 or HER3 instead of another HER2, and pertuzumab interrupts the formation of those heterodimers. Now, there are also two posters discussed there on another agent, TDM1. What's that, and what did they say? Well, TDM1 is another interesting drug. TDM1 is trastuzumab that is linked to a very tiny dose of a chemotherapeutic agent. The agent is in a class of drugs called metansinoids. These were drugs that were investigated many, many years ago and were abandoned because they were felt to be excessively neurotoxic. In this case, the dose of the metansinoid is very, very low, and the thinking is that the trastuzumab selectively delivers the metansinoid to the HER2-positive cancer cell, that this molecule is internalized, and that the metansinoid then has a cytotoxic effect. There have now been two phase one studies reported using two different schedules. We've actually had both of these studies open at our institution. And generally speaking, the drug has been very, very well tolerated. At the highest dose levels, there were difficulties seen with thrombocytopenia and with abnormal liver function tests. But at the doses that have been selected for phase two work, the drug is extremely well tolerated, at least in this limited experience. And it has also been quite effective in the phase one studies with objective responses seen in many of the patients who had measurable disease on these phase one studies and a relatively long duration of response in these patients. Now, this is all from a limited experience in fewer than 100 patients in these trials. And there is a broader phase two program that is being developed and plans for phase three studies. But again, you know, it's another important agent in this group of drugs that are focused on HER2-positive breast cancer. This is actually a drug that we have been very involved with, and we've participated in both of these studies that I just talked about. And I personally have treated probably six or seven patients with TDM1. And it's a drug 
again, still very early in development, but it is a drug that is clearly a very effective drug. And, you know, I personally have had patients who have been on this drug for many, many months with excellent quality of life and great control of their disease. What about actually reversal, you know, objective responses, symptomatic improvement? Yeah, so we've seen objective responses, and in the patients with measurable disease in the trials, the objective response rate in that subgroup of patients with measurable disease is about 50%, and these are patients who have been quite heavily pretreated. So, you know, I personally think that this is a drug that has legs, and I think it's a drug that has great promise in HER2 positive breast cancer. And, you know, of course, what is so far one of the other appealing aspects of the drug is that it really has very minimal toxicity. It doesn't cause hair loss. It doesn't cause nausea. And the real question is, is this a drug that will be able to replace for at least some, if not many patients, the combination of chemotherapy and trastuzumab? Same positive feelings about pertuzumab or more conservatism? You know, so I haven't worked with pertuzumab as much, but I know that the people who have worked with pertuzumab are very keen on it. You know, I think if you look at both drugs, they both look like very, very promising drugs. As one who has had more experience with TDM1, I'm just, you know, that much more excited about it, but that comes from personal experience. And I think that both of these drugs are active. And I'll also mention that the HSP90 inhibitors, in particular the drug that has been studied at Memorial Sloan Kettering, is also another active drug in patients who have resistance to trastuzumab. And, you know, I think in a real way, the bar has now gotten higher in terms of these new drugs for patients with trastuzumab-resistant disease. We've seen responses with all of these agents. And I think that as we develop new drugs here, the expectation is that early on we may see responses. And if in early testing you don't see responses with these new agents for HER2-resistant disease, the drugs simply may not get evaluated further. The last thing I want to ask you about is we've chatted over the last couple of years about the potential role now and in the future for NAB paclitaxel. It's being incorporated into a lot of clinical trials. Obviously, it's available all study. There are a number of posters presenting data, and I asked you to review four of them. If you could kind of quickly summarize what you saw there and how that affects your perception of this agent and where it's heading. Yeah, well, there are several posters that focused on NAB paclitaxel. One, using it in a preoperative regimen in combination with carboplatin and bevacizumab and trastuzumab with a very, very high pathologic complete response rate, giving this four-drug regimen to, I believe, 26 patients with HER2-positive breast cancer and in which they reported a pathologic complete response rate well in excess of 50%. And that's without the anthracycline a la Buzdar. That is without an anthracycline. And one other point about that study is that it's actually with a relatively short duration of treatment. And my sense looking at this was that it was about a 12-week course of treatment. You know, one of the aspects of the Buzdar study that has been brought up repeatedly that I've brought up is the fact that it's six months of treatment and time in and of itself may be partially responsible for that high path CR rate. And here it's a short duration of treatment. Now, whether this is the bevacizumab adding to the trastuzumab, whether it's the nab paclitaxel, whether it's the platinum, I think it's really hard to sort out. There was a pilot study that was reported looking at AC 
followed by nabpaclitaxel in the adjuvant setting given in a dose-dense fashion with bevacizumab. The one thing that jumped out there was that it did seem that the neurotoxicity rate, in particular the grade 3 neurotoxicity, was a little bit more than we typically see with standard AC followed by paclitaxel. The authors actually concluded that it appeared quite similar to their previous experience, but 15% of patients had grade 3 neurotoxicity, and that's of some concern in the adjuvant setting. Again, though, this might not just be the nabpaclitaxel, and it may be also related to the concurrent administration of bevacizumab. With nabpaclitaxel, my strong sense is we need good randomized data comparing nabpaclitaxel in an adequately powered phase 3 trial to see if this agent is superior to the other taxanes that are presently available. And we've got a lot of very interesting phase 2 data. There are many oncologists who are giving a fair amount of nabpaclitaxel. There are many others who have held back and are continuing to give paclitaxel. I think the three big questions in my mind are, one, is it a drug that is more effective? Two, what schedule should it be given on? There is the suggestion you know, from the phase two work that weekly is better than every three week. And three, is it a drug with comparable toxicity? And in particular, how is this neurotoxicity going to play out? And not to advertise CLGB studies too much, but the CLGB and, in fact, the NCCTG are cooperating on a clinical trial, a large clinical trial, in women with metastatic breast cancer that will compare nabpaclitaxel versus paclitaxel versus ixabepalone. We have these three agents, one that's old and at this point maybe a little boring, and these two new agents, and I think we really need to see how they stack up against one another. And we should mention everybody gets Bev in that study. Everybody in that study gets Bevacizumab since, you know, in our view, adding Bevacizumab is certainly a reasonable standard. And it was interesting because there was a phase two study looking at NAB with Bevacizumab as first-line treatment. I guess so that's one of the arms of the study that's being done right now. I think it's a really cool study. What about the phase two study that was reported at ASCO of that combination? Any thoughts about what they saw there? So in that phase two trial of NAB plus bevacizumab, I think that was the one phase two experience with NAB paclitaxel that perhaps was a little bit less encouraging. I don't think it was discouraging. I actually think that what was reported in that study looked extremely comparable to what we've seen with paclitaxel and bevacizumab. The response rate in that study was in the 30 to 35% range. And that's the level of response that one typically sees with the taxanes in a first-line setting in a phase two trial. So, you know, I think that we have some studies that have provided a little bit of a suggestion that NAB may be better. I think we have others that suggest that it's comparable. We do, of course, know that the hypersensitivity reactions are less of a problem. And so, you know, very clearly, it is a drug when you've had problems with hypersensitivity or where you want to avoid the use of corticosteroids, it's a drug that can be substituted.